Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 13th day of July, 2007. I am here today to inform you that there are indeed terrorists out there who want to kill you because they hate your personal freedoms. And those terrorists are in the highest levels of the government, military, and intelligence agencies. This is a point that I do not make lightly. Terrorism is defined as the use of terror or fear in order to achieve a political end. And one has only to look at the recent events in London, the failed car bomb attempts, to discover who the real terrorists are. Who were the ones that were hyping the event? Who were the ones who made it seem that this was something that you needed to be afraid of? It was the official government sources and the media acting in a feedback loop to hype the event. One of the sane voices cutting through the hysteria surrounding the failed car bombing attempts was ex-CIA agent Larry Johnson, who went on the Keith Olverman show to detail the fact that the bombs were in fact incredibly primitive and posed almost no danger to the public. Um, in fact, he pointed out that these so-called bombs, in fact, weren't bombs at all, not explosive devices. They were simply incendiaries. If they had even worked, they would have just caused a large fire, probably destroyed the cars themselves and maybe someone who was within a few feet of them, but would not certainly have exploded and killing hundreds of people as the media wanted you to believe. The people hyping these events and making them seem more than they are are the real terrorists. Today we're going to look into another ignoble event, the events of 7-7. And no, I'm not referring to the shameful Live Earth concert, which took place on 7-7-07, which I talked about in last week's episode. I'm referring to the July 7th, 2005 bombings in the London Underground and on the one London bus. As always, when investigating a false flag terrorist event, it's beneficial to look at the official account of what happened on that day before finding out what really happened. So this information comes from an overview on the BBC News website. On the morning of July 7th, at approximately 8.50am, three bombs exploded simultaneously on the London Tube Underground Network. One bomb exploded at Liverpool Street Station, one at Edgware Road Station, and one on a train traveling between King's Cross and Russell Square Stations. In the immediate aftermath and confusion, it was not immediately clear what had happened. Authorities began shutting down the stations involved and shutting down the tube network. But at the time, it was reported that there had been a power surge on the underground, and that's why people were being evacuated. About one hour later, a fourth bomb exploded on a bus at Tavistock Square. At that point, it became obvious that this was a terrorist attack. The bombs were the result of four suicide bombers, Hasib Hussein, Mohammed Siddiq Khan, Jermaine Lindsay, Shezad Tanweer. And all four of them were unknown to intelligence and police at the time. They were so-called clean skins who had not been involved in terrorism to that date. That is the official story, or the official account of what happened, but we don't have to del delve very deeply to find that this is in fact not the case. On July 7th, there was an AP report issued that was picked up by the National Post in Canada, among other publications, 
which asserted that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, was in London on that day attending an investment conference. And he was apparently, according to the AP story, warned by British intelligence um, through the Israeli embassy in London minutes before the explosions went off of possible terror attacks in the city. The next day, July 8th, Mr. Netanyahu issued a stern denial of this accusation, admitting that he was indeed on his way to the conference, but had not received the information before the explosions happened. According to this report issued on July 8th, 2005, and found at WorldNet Daily, Netanyahu said, quote, When the first bomb went off, we were departing our hotel. While we were on our way out, the security people said there was an explosion near the area I was scheduled to speak. They asked us to go back and stay put in our hotel. This story immediately gives the lie to the official line at the time that there was a power surge on the underground, which is what the public was told for uh, one hour, approximately one hour after the bombs exploded, um, before the bomb on the bus exploded. This is significant because it shows that the authorities knew what was happening within seconds or minutes of the explosions themselves. Uh, even if Mr. Netanyahu is right and he did not receive any warning before the explosions, the fact that he received one just minutes after the explosion to indicate that that was indeed an explosion indicates that the authorities were indeed aware of what had happened and purposefully misled the public, presumably with the intention of making sure that they did not panic in the event of these bombings. One can only wonder what would happen if the passengers on the bus that exploded Tavistock Square had been informed of the same thing that Mr. Netanyahu was informed of at that time, approximately a few minutes after the bombing. But regardless, let's move on to a report that was also issued in the wake of the July 7th bombing, entitled, I Was Into Bomb Carriage and Survived. The report features a Cambridge dancer by the name of Bruce Late, who was on the troop train tube train carriage that exploded uh, near London's Aldgate East Station. The article gives his harrowing account of what happened on that train, including some rather stunning details which completely contradict the official story of what happened on 7-7. According to this article, Mr. Late said, quote, The policeman said, mind that hole, that's where the bomb was. The metal was pushed upwards as if the bomb was underneath the train. They seemed to think the bomb was left in a bag, but I don't remember anybody being where the bomb was, or any bag, he said. Quote. Again, this shows that there are serious questions about exactly what happened regarding the explosives. What type of explosives were used? According to the official account, there has never been a consensus reached on what types of explosives were used, but we are led to believe that these four suicide bombers did not have any access to any special uh, technology, that these were rather primitive bombs. Primitive, but unfortunately highly deadly. That's, of course, contradicted by a report that came out on the 12th of July, 2005, uh, in The Independent, entitled, Explosive Used in Bombs Was of Military Origin. And the report goes on to detail this story. The bombs used in Thursday's terrorist attacks were of, quote, military origin, according to a senior French policeman sent to London to help in what, was, what has become the biggest criminal investigation in British history. 
Christophe Chabot, head of the French Anti-Terrorism Coordination Unit, told Le Monde newspaper that the explosives used in the bombings were of, quote, military origin, which he described as, quote, very worrying. We're, u- we're more used to cells making homemade explosives with chemicals, he said. How did they get them? Either by trafficking, for example, in the Balkans, or they had someone on the inside who enabled them to get, out of the mi- get them out of the military establishment. A tantalizing piece of the puzzle there, but unfortunately not one that was picked up on by the mainstream media. A report that did make it into the mainstream media on July 12, 2005, was this report from The Guardian, entitled CCTV Seizures Raise Hope of Quick Identification of Suspects. The report goes on to detail the fact that although Britain is the most watched society in the world now with well over 4 million CCTV cameras in London watching the citizens' every move, the 7-7 bombings were the exact type of situation for which this technology was created. And the report goes on to detail this ray of hope in the investigation. Quote, Police may be able to pinpoint the London bombers on CCTV in as little as two weeks, a terrorism expert predicted last night. As officers began the task of collating and analyzing thousands of hours of CCTV, mobile phone, and video footage, Andrew Silk of the University of East London pointed to the case of David Copeland, the London nail bomber. Copeland was identified by his boss and a cab driver after police released CCTV pictures of him outside Brixton Station in April 1999, the day he planted the first of three bombs. Dr. Silk said, It took just over three weeks to find David Copeland and there was less footage available. I think police will identify these bombers in a similar time because the systems involved are much better. We should, within two weeks, have those pictures released to the media, at least some images of the bombers. End quote. Well, it turns out, apparently, that those hopes were misplaced. Despite the fact that there are millions of CCTV cameras in London, and they would have recorded every step of the entire journey of those men as soon as they entered the transportation network, it is extremely peculiar to note that, to date, as of July 2007, two years after the events, there have only been three pictures released of the suspected suicide bombers on the morning of July 7th. One of them purports to show the men entering the Luden train station to buy their tickets. The only other two images to be released from the CCTV cameras from that day detail one of the bombers, Mr. Hussein, who is, in fact, not surrounded by any of the other bombers in the pictures. In fact, one of the pictures is so closely cropped that Mr. Hussein is all that is invisible in the picture. Three CCTV pictures out of the literally thousands of cameras that would have been tracking their every move throughout that morning. If that strikes you as suspicious, you might be confirmed in your suspicions by what took place on the number 30 bus that exploded in Tavistock Square. Also, in the bus bombing, the CCTV camera turned out not to be working, and thus no footage was available of the bomber or the bomb itself. In an article on July 15, 2005, entitled London Stagecoach Employee Says Bus Bombing Suspicious, Paul Joseph Watson details an email which he received from an employee of Stagecoach, which was the company responsible for the majority of London's buses. And in his email, he says, this bus driver quote, says, quote, CCTV gets maintained at least two or three times a week and can digitally store up to two whole wor- weeks' worth of footage. 
This is done by a private contractor. So when I heard that the CCTV camera wasn't working on a vehicle that's no more than two years old since last June, I'm sorry, that's rubbish. I work for the company. I know different. Also a point of interest, last Saturday, a contractor came to inspect the CCTV on the buses at the depot. According to my supervisor, the person spent more than 20 hours over that weekend. 20 hours to see if the CCTV is working? Also, that person who came was not a regular contractor. For security reasons, the same few people always come to the depot to carry out work. This time, it was different. Drivers in the depot already think that so-called bombers had inside help because it was so organized. Some even think it had help from the company. End quote. Again, serious concerns about the CCTV cameras on the bus, but again, these were not followed up on in the mainstream media. But where is all this leading? If these so-called suicide bombers weren't what they appeared to be, then what are they exactly? Well, we have this rather stunning piece from BBC News from Monday the 30th of April 2007, which details the lie that these four suicide bombers were so-called clean skins unknown to the authorities before the bombing took place. It details that one of the 7-7 bombers, Mr. Mohammad Siddiq Khan, was in fact known to intelligence uh, before the bombing. This report says, quote, During the surveillance of Omar Kiam, MI5 officers saw him meet an unidentified man on four occasions. That man was later confirmed to be Mohammed Sadiq Khan, one of the four July 2005 London suicide bombers, end quote. The report goes on to give actual wiretapped conversation between Mr. Omar Kiam and Mr. Mohammed Sadiq Khan that was caught by the MI5. I'll read you a, shall we say, highly suggestive piece from that wiretapped conversation. We'll start with Mr. Khan. MSK, are you really a terrorist? Omar Kiam, they're working with us. MSK, you're serious. You are, basically. Omar, I'm not a terrorist, but they're working through us. MSK, who are? There's no one higher than you. Omar, I do not even live in Crawley anymore. I moved out here to Sloth, because in the next month they are going to start raiding big time all over the UK. This is an extremely enigmatic conversation, which one would be hard-pressed to suggest leads to any other conclusion that, than that MI5 was following these men, men and MI6, the British version of the CIA, were perhaps in control. If this seems outlandish, it's time to turn to some more evidence. Here we pick up the trail of one Harun Rashid Aswat. This description of Aswat comes from a July 28, 2005 edition of the Sun newspaper. It reads in part, quote, An Al-Qaeda chief suspected of masterminding the 7-7 London suicide bombings has been arrested. British-born Harun Rashid Aswat, 30, was seized in Zambia. Twenty calls were made from his mobile phone to two of the four suicide bombers in the days before the attacks on three tubed stations and a bus left 56 dead. Aswat is said to have slipped into the UK through Felixtown, Suffolk two weeks before the attacks and flown out from Heathrow hours before the explosions. Again, just as we had weeks ago in the Air India case with a known 
Cesis Mole slipping out of the country just weeks before they started rounding up suspects in the Air India trial. We have this terrorist mastermind on terrorist watch list slipping in and out of the UK just prior to the attacks and then being arrested in Zambia. Well, what came of this arrest? Certainly we didn't uh, hear anything much about Mr. Aswat after this story. Um, the article in question goes on to detail that it was alleged that Americans had asked British authorities for permission to arrest Aswat, but were told they couldn't because he is a British citizen. This, of course, is complete bunkum and uh, easily disproven, but please don't take my word for that. Let's turn to an interview with John Loftus from Fox News in 2005. Mr. Loftus was an author, former U.S. government prosecutor, and a former Army intelligence officer who has inside information about FBI and CIA investigations of terrorists around the world. Let's listen to what Mr. Loftus had to say about Mr. Aswat. Aswat is believed to be the mastermind of all the bombings in London. From on the 7-7 and 721, this is the guy, we think. This is the guy, and what's really embarrassing is that the entire British police are out chasing him, and one wing of the British government, MI6, or the British Secret Service, right. has been hiding him. And this has been a real source of contention between CIA, Hold on, the Justice Department, and Britain. MI6 has been hiding him. Are you saying that he has been working for them? Oh, I'm not saying it. This is what the Muslim sheikh said in an interview in a British newspaper back in 2001. So he's a double agent, or what? He's a double agent. He's yeah, working for the, so he's working for the Brits to try to give them information about Al-Qaeda, but in reality, he's still an Al-Qaeda operative. Yeah. The CIA and the Israelis all accused MI6 of letting all these terrorists live in London, uh, not because they were getting Al-Qaeda information, but for appeasement. It was one of those, you leave us alone, we leave you alone kind of things. Well, we left him so alone too long then. Absolutely. Now, we knew about this guy, Aswat. Back in 1999, he came to America. The Justice Department wanted to indict him in Seattle because him and his buddy were trying to set up a terrorist training school in Oregon. So they indicted That's the buddy, right? But why didn't they indict him? Well, it comes out, we've just learned that the headquarters of the U.S. Justice Department ordered the Seattle prosecutors not to touch Aswat. Hello. Now, hold on. Why? And that's... Well, apparently, Aswat was working for British intelligence. Now, Aswat's boss, the one-armed Captain Hook, he gets indicted two years later. So the guy above him and below him get indicted, but not Aswat. Now, there's a split of opinion within U.S. intelligence. Some people say that the British intelligence fibbed to us. They told us that Aswat was dead. And that's why the New York group dropped the case. That's not what most of the Justice Department thinks. They think that it was just, again, covering up for this very publicly affiliated guy with al-Mujarub. He was a mm -hmm. British intelligence plant. So all of a sudden, he disappears. He's in South Africa. We think he's dead. We don't know he's down there. Last month, the South African Secret Service come across the guy. Yeah, now the CIA he's says, alive. oh, he's alive. Our CIA says, uh, okay, let's arrest him. But the Brits say no again? The Brits say no. Now, the, at this point... Two weeks ago, the Brits know that the CIA wants to get a hold of Haroun. So what happens? He takes off again. Goes right to London. He isn't arrested when he lands. He isn't arrested when he leaves. Even though he's on a watch list. He's on a watch list. The only reason he could get away with that was if he was working for British intelligence. He wow. was a wanted man. 
And then takes off the day before the bombings, I understand it? Yeah, and goes to Pakistan. The Pakistan, Pakistanis arrest They him. jail him. They jail him. He's released within 24 hours, back to southern Africa, goes to Zimbabwe, and is arrested in Zambia. Trying to now the U.S., wow. the U.S., we're trying to get our hands on this guy. John? Hang around. <laughs> I have so many questions now. Oh, this is a bad here. one. So what happened to Mr. Aswat after he was detained in Zambia? Well, after that, the trail of Mr. Aswat in the mainstream media starts to go cold. Although we do have this report from August 1st, 2005 from the Financial Times of London, headline, Police Shift Focus to Finding Organizers, which reads, in part, quote, Although police would not say how far they had come to finding links to those higher up the chain, they sought to play down the role of Haroon Rashid Aswat, a Briton of Indian descent who was arrested last month in Zambia and once suspected of having a coordinating role. Zambian officials have agreed to extradite Mr. Aswat, whose telephone reportedly received calls from the July 7th bombers, but British officials said they were no longer interested in interrogating him. End quote. And then it goes dead. Mr. Aswat successfully escaped, despite being um, one of the masterminds of the bombing. Funny how this works. And of course, the, um, the insinuation by the interviewer who is interviewing Mr. Loftus is that this was a double agent, that he was uh, attempting to infiltrate Al-Qaeda, but in fact he was actually working for Al-Qaeda and thus helped the attacks to take place. Well, yeah, I guess you can believe that uh, it was just a, an agent that got away and um, managed to, to game the system. Just as FBI Director Danny Coulson went on record to say in March of this year that Andreas Strassmeyer was, in fact, an agent of the FBI. Andreas Strassmeyer being, of course, one of these Vengalis who puppeteered no, uh, Timothy McVeigh in the Oklahoma City bombing. Clearly just another example of an agent who, in fact, was working for another team. Or uh, the wor original World Trade Center bombing in 1993. We have um, actual taped conversations. The, the man that the uh, FBI hired to set up the, the plot to try to sting the um, bombers. We have conversations on record of uh, between him and the, his FBI handlers where he was extremely concerned about giving these, uh, uh, these bombers uh, the, the bombs themselves, saying, I, uh, you told me to cook the bombs and I cooked them. You told me to, to give them to them. I don't know if I should be giving them live bombs. And uh, the FBI handlers tell him, oh, it's okay, don't worry, we're going to sting them. And then he gives them the bombs and uh, it, they end up bombing the World Trade Center. Uh, several dead. Um, and just like uh, in the Air India bombing, um, CSIS has a mole working inside the organization. In fact, someone who helped found the organization who pulls out three days before the bombing goes off. And, uh, you know, in each case, I guess it's just someone who's uh, well-placed inside, uh, who's actually gaming the system and uh, turning against the uh, intelligence agencies who are handling him. Uh, in every single case, huh, a total of thousands dying in those combined attacks. And uh, yes, uh, it's it's obvious that we need uh, large intelligence agencies uh, who um, are working to protect us so diligently, and we need to pay them billions and billions of dollars each year to protect us, because they do such a good job of it, even if you are to believe that these uh, masterminds of all these bombings are actually um, not being instructed by the intelligence agencies to carry out the bombings, which they clearly are. So we have terrorists who are clearly being manipulated by intelligence agencies. Um, they're clearly puppets in this scheme. We have key evidence being held back uh, from public scrutiny, like the CCTV camera evidence. Uh, in fact, uh, we have 
the mastermind being detained and then released because the authorities are not interested in questioning him. I guess the only thing uh, we would need to really seal this deal as uh, an inside job or a false flag terrorist operation is to discover that there were drills of the exact same things happening at the exact same places as they actually did happen at the exact same time. Oh wait, they did. It did come out in the mainstream media uh, in the day or two following July 7th bombings that, in fact, there was a major company or a major corporation that was indeed running drills of the exact same bombs blowing up at the exact same locations at the exact same time as they actually happened on that day. This is a key point, and I don't think that the importance of this point has to be made, but I'll make it anyway. Let's turn to a clip from an excellent documentary, Terror Storm. A new version of Terror Storm has just been released, expanded and updated, super high quality, so please buy the DVD from Infowars.com, or better yet, go follow the link from my website to PrisonPlanet.tv and become a member and get access to all of Alex Jones' documentary films. But we're going to listen to a clip from Terror Storm right now in which they detailed the simultaneous bombs that were going off and the man who revealed that to us, Mr. Peter Powers. Let's go to Terror Storm. In any stage terror attack, governments have to be extremely careful to keep the operation shielded, compartmentalized. Most people in government are moral individuals who believe that they're standing up for their nation's sovereignty, for its national interest, and it's absolutely essential to keep them in the dark. One of the chief tools used by governments as a smokescreen is staging exercises or drills at the exact same time and exact same places as real events. When the Oklahoma City Federal Building was bombed, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms was staging an anti-terror drill with their bomb squad on the morning of April 19, 1995, at the same time that the real event took place. On the morning of September 11, 2001, the Pentagon was running five separate drills, two of the drills targeting the exact same targets at the exact same time. That caused NORAD to stand down, believing it was just a drill. And London was no different. It's important to note that those taking part in the drills need not know that they're part of a larger operation. In fact, it's better for the conspirators that they not be informed. One of the chief reasons this is done is so that if any of the operatives carrying out the attack are caught by other elements of the government, they can simply claim that they were taking part in a drill or an exercise. NSA, InfoPol 9, and Echelon-type systems that are scanning for terrorist chatter will be fooled into believing they've simply picked up part of an exercise. On the morning of 7-7 in London, there was a simultaneous exercise targeting the exact same trains, the exact same bus, at the exact same locations, at the very same time. What we're supposed to believe is some kind of coincidence. There was also an anti-terrorist drill going on on 7-7. And again, just like 9-11, they were talking about attacks on the same targets, the same kind of tube stations, and exactly the same time as the actual attack happened. We learned of the drills of 7-7 on 7-7 from Peter Power, the head of Visor Consultants, a crisis management firm based in London. Mr. Power was the former spokesperson for Scotland Yard. Mr. Power told National British Television, ITN News, about the drills. Uh, today we were running an exercise for a company, bearing in mind I'm now in the private sector, 
and we sat everybody down in the city, a thousand people involved in the whole organization, but the crisis team, and the most peculiar thing was we based our scenario on the simultaneous attacks on the underground and mainline station. So we had to suddenly switch an exercise from fictional to real. And one of the first things is, get that bureau number. When you have a list of people missing, tell them. And so it took a long to, time. Just to get this right, you were actually working today on an exercise that envisioned yes. virtually this scenario. Uh, almost precisely. I was up until 2 o'clock this morning because it, it's our job, my own company, Visor Consultants. We specialize in helping people to get their crisis management response. How do you jump from slow time thinking to quick time doing? And we chose a scenario with their assistance which is based on a terrorist attack because they're very close to uh, a property occupied by Jewish businessmen. They're in the city and there are more American banks in the city than there are in the whole of New York. A logical thing to do. And it, I've still so got how, the... I was going to say, how extraordinary today <laughs> must feel for you as, as it unfolds. He repeated himself to BBC Radio 5. Uh, the thing that concerns me is that what are we doing for the thousands of men and women, actually, who are in London working? And I say that because at half past nine this morning, we were actually running an exercise for a, over a company of a thousand people in London based on simultaneous bombs going off precisely at the railway stations that happened this morning. So I still have the hairs on the back of my legs standing upright. To get this quite straight, you were running uh, a, an exercise to see where, how you would cope with this, and it happened while you were running the exercise. Precisely. And it was uh, about half past nine this morning. We planned this for a company of for obvious reasons, I don't want to reveal their name, but they're listening and they'll know it. And we had a room full of crisis managers for the first time they met. And so within five minutes, we made a pretty rapid decision. This is the real one. Uh, and so we went through the correct, the correct drills of activating crisis management procedures to jump from slow time to quick time thinking yeah. and so on. If we use a standard actuary employed by major insurance companies to calculate the probability of these events coinciding in a 10-year mean, we learn that the probability of this happening is greater than 1 in 300 fretagillion. To put that in perspective, that's a number with 41 zeros behind it. That is trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions and still more trillions times greater than all the grains of sand in all the world. To put that number in perspective, it has 41 zeros. Scientists using supercomputers have estimated that the Earth has over 7 quatillion grains of sand. A quatillion has 18 zeros. It would appear as some way of stopping the response of the emergency services or providing some kind of cover for what must be operations orchestrated in some way by the state. Ah, mere coincidence. Certainly nothing worthy of an investigation. Or at least that's the answer you'd get if you asked Tony Blair. Of course, immediately after the July 7th bombings, there were calls for an inquiry into the blasts to determine how they happened, why they happened, how they could have been prevented, and how future ones, future attacks could be prevented. And on the 11th of July 2005, the Times of India wrote this story entitled Inquiry into Blast's a ludicrous diversion, Blair. And it reads in part, quote, British Prime Minister Tony Blair has rejected demands for a government inquiry into Thursday's multiple bomb attacks on London, even as police and security services pinned their hopes on a quick breakthrough in the search for the culprits while an anguished city defiantly returned to work against all odds. The article goes on to quote Mr. Blair, who believed an inquiry into the attacks would be a, quote, ludicrous diversion, they said. That's a phrase to remember, because you should type it into Google Video and find the excellent documentary entitled Ludicrous Diversions, 
which details all of these facts and many more, including holes and inconsistencies in the 7-7 story. It's an excellent documentary, and I highly recommend it. But, of course, Mr. Blair at least has been, um, if nothing else, has at least been consistent on this point. Um, Two years later, on the 1st of May 2007, uh, once it was revealed that MI5 had indeed had certain members of the 7th of July attacks under surveillance well before the attacks, political pressure again started to mount for an inquiry. Again, we have a BBC News article from the 1st of May 2007. Uh, Pressure grows for a 7-7 inquiry, which reads in part, Survivors and relatives of victims of the 7th of July attacks are stepping up the pressure for a public inquiry into MI5's handling of intelligence. On Monday, it emerged at the end of a two-year-long terror trial that MI5 had two of the 7th of July bombers under surveillance a year before the attacks. Ministers are opposed to an inquiry, but a parliamentary committee will consider why the bombers were not picked up. That was followed the very next day, on the 2nd of May 2007, by this BBC News article, Blair Rejects 7-7 Inquiry Calls, which reads in part, Tony Blair has again rejected calls for a fresh inquiry into the 7-7 attacks, saying it would undermine the security services. Even for the people who believe that there was absolutely nothing suspicious about these attacks, I would only ask, why would you oppose an independent investigation into the attacks? If there is truly nothing to hide by the security services, then what can possibly be lost by such an investigation? How could it possibly undermine security to investigate how security failed so signally to protect human life on that day? The only answer is that there is something to hide. And the unfortunate conclusion is that even if there were to be an inquiry, its independence could not be assured. Again, an amazing coincidence. Exactly one month before the attacks, on June 7, 2005, a new law was passed. The Inquiries Act 2005 came into effect on that day in England. The Inquiries Act was roundly condemned by human rights groups, including Amnesty International which asked it members of the British judiciary not to serve on any inquiry held under the Act, as they contend that, quote, any inquiry would be controlled by the executive which is empowered to block public scrutiny of state actions, end quote. One opponent to the bill, in fact, went so far as to state that the British Parliament should rename the bill the Public Inquiries Cover-Up Bill. And again, I urge you to look up this Act and discover exactly how it did change how inquiries are held in the British system. The point is that the government is not going to investigate itself. We must become the press that will investigate the government. Of course, we should keep up pressure on our elected representatives to make the public's political will on this issue clear. If you are in England, my British friends, please get in touch with your member of parliament and demand a public inquiry into the 7-7 bombings. For my other friends around the world, please get involved with the 9-11 truth movement. 9-11 is still the key to exposing the government terrorists. That's all for this week. Thank you again for joining me. Please stay tuned for next week. Episode 8 of the Corbett Report. Meet the North American Union.